of Listeners to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose Levy, and I'm here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. Uh, each week on Connect the Dots, we connect the dots between individual well-being, the well-being of our communities, the well-being of our food, water, air, and earth, and the well-being of our society, uh, which we all know is not doing very well right now, um, as well as the ecological balance um, and uh, interconnectedness of life here on planet Earth. I'm a longstanding journalist of the environment, food, health, public policy, the media, and popular attitudes. And each week on the show, we talk with different uh, journalists, authors, activists, scientists, advocates, economists, uh, and a whole host of people who each hold um, different perspectives on our interconnected world. Today, I'm really delighted um, to have back with us on Connect the Dots, because I believe it's uh, his second appearance, Jim Norekis, who's the editor of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Um, full confession, this is an outlet for which I have been uh, honored to contribute, uh, and one that I've supported uh, and whose work I follow very closely and have done so for a long time. Um, it's, uh, you know... In, in my world, this is kind of part of, like, you know, the, the group of, uh, you know, people who really helping to redress uh, the tremendous uh, corporate media influence that invades all of uh, the understanding of so many Americans uh, and to really provide accurate news, honest journalism. Um, it's a terrific outlet and one that every uh, listener to this show should follow. Uh, as as I do. Um, so welcome back, um, Jim Norek. is so happy to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me back on. Um, so, Jim, you know, the usual beat of FAIR um, is, you know, kind of looking at what the media is doing, how they're spinning stuff, what they're omitting, um, and what they're promoting, and really kind of providing a very important counterweight of honest information. Um, over the last couple of months, you have also uh, focused uh, intently on COVID-19, on the pandemic, on the coverage of it, um, on, you know, its evolution, where it is and what's happening, on the governance and policy and policy decisions concerning it. Um, you know, to me, that makes complete sense because it is, the huge story of our lives right now, and it's not that you exclude other coverage, but um, I've, and maybe I've missed it, but, um, you know, I've never seen you, I've never seen FAIR, um, you know, really kind of focus in on something, and of course this is a very huge something. How did you um, make the decision to do it, and, and you know, why do you, why, why, why do you feel it's important? Well, that? I mean, it is something that we've done before in like times of war uh, you know after September 11th we weren't talking about much other than the aftermath of September 11th uh, uh, there are times when the the country focuses on an issue and the media focus on an issue um, mm -hmm. and it's um, you know the, the there is so much attention being paid by the media uh, to this one thing that that uh, we sort of naturally gravitate towards it. Um, you know, it would be 
different, I think, if we were if we thought that the media were sort of capriciously focusing on something that that wasn't all that important. But this is something that uh, is affecting everyone's life and uh, presents, uh, I think, a, a, a danger that some people still don't appreciate how how serious this is. Um, mm-hmm. There's sort of a a tendency to compare what has happened, you know, how, how many people have died from, from COVID uh, to date and compare that with other things that that kill people um, as if we haven't entirely changed our behavior in order to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, you know, you, you, you can't, you can't think, uh, you know, we shouldn't have done what we did because it only killed X number of people. You have to have some estimate of how many people would have died uh, if people hadn't changed their behavior. Um, and that's right. that's what you balance the cost of changing your behavior against. That's a really good point. Um, you know, that that's really an interesting counterweight because we're not doing the statistics on... Um, you know, where would we be now had there been no lockdown, no masks, um, you know, and, and we still have very inadequate testing. We, we hardly have any tracing at this point, which, you know, are all the sort of methods that are have been used uh, to try to <clears throat> bring down the numbers here. Uh, we never talk about where it would actually be, although I have to say, as a, as a native New Yorker, um, wh- which has been, you know, a, uh, a major hotspot, and therefore, in a situation where, you know, I know many people um, who have lost loved ones, who themselves have suffered from this, um, and, you know, so to, so it can seem abstract, you know, perhaps to people in an isolated location of some kind, you know, a, a less dense location. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of uh, among people, among New Yorkers, there's very little... Uh, you know, question about about what uh, how you know how uh, contagious or difficult this is. Um, yeah. But you know, for people elsewhere at some kind of distance, uh, it may seem more abstract, um, and you know, therefore the reporting becomes really essential. Um, you know, have you? I mean, do you do calculations? I mean, do you take the data you find and kind of? See where it would have led. Have you looked into that at all in terms of you know trying to calculate that, or do you? Is there anyone that is kind of keeping track of where you know where we are now and where we might have been? I think Sweden has been kind of the poster child for let's take a, a more relaxed response, um, let people go about more, uh, hope that people will develop herd immunity, um, which is you know one of the. Uh, Kind of counter proposals, shall we say? Right. And and then there's a myth that that Sweden, you know, in fact, uh, has solved, uh, you know, that problem that way. Uh, but that's not actually the case. I mean, could I mean, is Sweden uh, a good poster child to look at, um, you know, the open all the doors scenario from from your perspective, or you know, are there other ones that are better, or you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that that looking at the the numbers is really important. Um, trying to figure out uh, just how dangerous this pathogen is um, and what are the, the responses that can affect how many people it infects. Uh, I think these are, are 
crucial things to do. Um, and uh, I think it's very important to be looking at uh, not just different places within the United States, but, but different parts of the world um, and, and look at, at what kind of responses people have had and, and what kind of results they've gotten. Uh, and Sweden has gotten a lot of attention uh, because it's seen as a, a sign that you really don't have to, to worry too much about this thing and, and, um, and can take more of a lackadaisical attitude towards it. Uh, and I think that, that this is just really misguided for a couple of reasons. One is that, that you know, Sweden has not had uh, uh, just ignore it as their, their approach to the, the coronavirus. Um, they have taken a, a number of steps to try to prevent um, you know, banning large gatherings and encourage people to work from home and uh, social distancing and so on. Um, so it's not uh, sort of a control group of what if we had done nothing, mm-hmm. uh, but they have, uh, you know, not had sort of shelter-in-place orders. Um, they haven't uh, closed down their economy to the extent that other places have, uh, and their results have been compared to countries that are similar to Sweden uh, much much worse. Uh, this sort of a, a natural experiment between. Sweden and Norway, which are similar Scandinavian countries, um, mm-hmm. they they both have uh, uh, fairly dispersed populations, which I think is an important factor in in how quickly coronavirus spreads. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, the overall the death rate from COVID in Sweden has been six times worse than the death rate in Norway. Um, and at this point, Norway has basically stopped the spread of the coronavirus. Um, and so the, the current uh, rate of infection in Sweden is 20 times as bad. You know, 20 times as many people are, are getting COVID in Sweden as in Norway, um, which seems like a pretty clear uh, indication that, that this that Sweden's approach uh, has been a failed approach and that the um, you can't do that without without killing a lot of people um, and the, the the notion of herd immunity is something that that gets tossed around a lot um, yes. and I, 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 people have to, to understand that herd immunity it's it's not a there's not a precise figure that you can say, uh, you know, if you, if you hit this point, you'll have herd immunity. But people think of it as being in the neighborhood of like 70% of the population. Um, in, in some parts of Italy, which are the hardest hit, um, uh, it's believed that over 80% of the people are infected. Um, so, so that is the, the level at which you might consider that the virus is going to stop on its own because mm-hmm. the people who, you know, the, the, if you have a case of it, you probably won't meet someone uh, who you can pass it on to before you're, you're recovered. That's, that's what herd immunity is. Um, mm-hmm. And to have, uh, to get 80% of your population infected with uh, COVID, outside of, of places like Italy, 
I don't think there's any place that's had that level of infection, uh, and it's been devastating in Italy. Um, the, um, the death rate is it's, the death rate is something that is uh, hard to figure. The the, the the rate of of mortality if you are infected is very hard to figure because uh, not every infected case makes you sick, and therefore it's hard to tell who's been infected and who hasn't. Um, but the, the sort of best guess for uh, how how likely you are to die if you if you get a case of of this coronavirus is about one percent. Um, so if you're talking about eighty percent of your population being infected, that is you know point eight percent of your population dying. You know, and in in the United States, that's something like like three million people. Uh, so when people talk about herd immunity as a strategy, they are contemplating millions of people literally dying, uh, which I think is is just not, you know, to me that's unacceptable. And I think that that if we had a discussion that actually used numbers uh, instead of just tossing around this this phrase as a kind of buzzword, uh, I think most people would say no, it's not acceptable to have millions of people die. In order to, to because this disease is far more contagious. I mean, I've had people coming on, you know, commenting on my Facebook page or telling me in real life it's only one percent of people, but this is extraordinarily contagious. Right. Uh, not everyone, you know, uh, manifests symptoms, <clears throat> but and also from what I've read about herd immunity, <clears throat> you know, we have the common cold. Nobody has herd immunity for that. Right. Um, and that's another type of coronavirus. And so, you know, the assumption that every, um, you know, every type of virus or every kind of infection will produce a, uh, uh, you know, a neutralizing antibody response is is just not true, you know. So, in fact, um, there may not, I mean, there's, there's actually quite a lot of doubt about whether there will be development of herd immunity yeah, that is an important point. Um, I mean, the you know, the, the question it? of whether you can be reinfected with yeah. uh, with the coronavirus uh, is an, an open question. It it seems like if if it happens, it happens very rarely in the immediate aftermath of getting the, the COVID nineteen. Um, mm-hmm. That does not mean that a year from now you will still have the level of immunity that that you do now this disease in humans is only like like six months old um right. it, it, it's very it's very early to tell whether you know if you get the flu then you you won't get the flu again that flu season uh, mm-hmm. but you may get the flu again next flu season and that mm-hmm. that could be the case with the coronavirus and apparently is you know the coronavirus is a part of a family of coronaviruses and apparently, that's fairly common in in coronaviruses that they that they produce short term immunity, but not long term immunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my understanding. I'm not uh, I'm not positive that's the case, but that's my that's my understanding. The uh, the question about the flu yeah. is um, so one other thing that you you mentioned that I want to talk about. People when people say uh, it's not much more dangerous than the flu, there are two halves to that. As you as you as you say that there's the question of if you get it, how likely are you to die? And it looks like you're about ten times more likely to die with the flu than than I mean with the with the coronavirus than with the flu, um, and that's mm-hmm. that's much more serious. 
but it, but it's also the case that uh, the the coronavirus is much more infectious because in part because we haven't had any experience with it before, and in part because we don't have a vaccine for it. Uh, we do have vaccines for the flu. Um, not everybody gets vaccinated, but enough people get vaccinated that that it slows down the spread of flu. And so about 10% of the the population gets infected with the flu every year. Um, and so you have, you know, 0.1% of 10% dying, um, which is 0.01%, which is still in a big country. You know, I, I don't think we take the flu seriously enough, frankly. I think it's it's a a, a serious disease that we should do more to, to prevent. Um, but when you're talking about 1% of 80%, you know, that's obviously... Uh, um, a much bigger number than than 0.01 percent, uh, and and people people are not looking at both halves of the equation when when they're talking about how serious this disease is. Now, 80 percent, you're saying 80 percent of the population will get it either asymptomatically or symptomatically. Right, That's right. Not 80 percent will get sick, but 80 percent. That that is based on uh, based on you know Lombardy in Italy. Which seems to be the the place that's gotten the the worst the worst infection of any place. Um, that seems to be, you know, perhaps the upper limit. And you know, even in, you know, they were shutting down in Lombardy. Um, it's it's not necessarily the case that if they had done nothing in in Lombardy, that the infection could have even been higher. You know, it's possible that that you'll get near 100% infected with this disease. I don't know. Is that considered to be, because there are different strains of the coronavirus, and in fact it's mutating, so, you know, more, more strains upcoming, which is, is not that good news, really. Right. But is, there, is the Italian strain, for example, considered to be more uh, virulent, um, you know, or, or different in any way from the Asian strains? Yeah, there, there's a, a thought that, uh, you know, the, 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 there are people who were, Coming from from China and people coming from Europe, both mm-hmm. infected with the coronavirus, um, and the the strain from Europe is the one that predominates in in the United States. And there's some assumption that because it has spread further and faster, that therefore it's more infectious. Um, though it also, you know, it's hard to separate out. The biological properties of the virus from the social reaction to the virus, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that both uh, Washington and and California, which were places that uh, had early cases of of COVID nineteen coming from from China, uh, reacted more more quickly and more seriously than than New York did, which had mm-hmm. infections coming from from Europe, um, uh, our government here waited way too long, um, mm-hmm. and uh, before before putting a um, shutdown in effect, which is why New York has uh, the the kind of outbreak that it does, and you know why it looks so different than than other states. Um, I think it has less to do with, I mean, it, 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 in part it has to do with the fact that, you know, we, we take a lot of public transportation here, we, it, we, we live very densely, um, but, but primarily it has to do with 
how late we waited before taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. So we can't separate out from that whether the European strain is actually, um, you know, a more uh, virulent strain. It's, you know, uh, in terms of both in the numbers of people who will become symptomatic as well as the virulence of what they experience. I mean, they, yeah, they, my understanding is that this is it's just done epidemiologically that mm-hmm. that people are looking at at how quickly it spread and mm-hmm. and gauging how infectious it is based on the speed mm-hmm. of that spread. And there's so many variables in that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the the uh, countries in Asia have by and large, done a much better job dealing with the coronavirus. Um, uh, and uh, also, you know, uh, Australia and New Zealand are also places that have had a, a fairly successful response to to the coronavirus. Um, and that is the, you know, so the, the, the strains of the virus that are, going around in that part of the world are going to look less infectious uh, because, you know, for example, as just one variable, um, uh, the the East Asian countries were much quicker to, to encourage people to wear masks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, uh, in the United States and I think in parts of Europe, the idea of, of wearing masks was, was kind of discouraged at first. Um, yes. And so, you know, the, the the virus that circulates where people are wearing masks, uh, if masks are effective, will look less infectious because less people get infected. Uh, but is it the virus or is it the mask? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Yep. So we can't really know that. I mean, the reason I ask that question is because the uh, variety of different symptoms, you know, and characterizations of this, as well as its aftermath, you know, things that uh, it, you know, it, it, it has passed through someone's system and in some cases it leaves behind, um, you know, other harmful uh, health yeah. effects, you know, right. that, that result from it that can become long-term, chronic and long-term and everything. Um, so, you know, I was also wondering about that because even in the reports of people reporting on themselves or their family members, you know, um, you know, there's just a wide variety. It seems like of symptoms, and yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it is. It's a. It's a kind of a, um, a striking disease. I think um, the uh, this. Um, I have not. Uh, you know, I haven't focused so much on on the the medical aspects of of. The, the pathogen, but it does seem like uh, it produces a, a wide variety of responses from no symptoms uh, to you know, respiratory symptoms to, to digestive symptoms, right. uh, you know, nausea, diarrhea, um, it attacks the kidneys. Uh, you know, it seems to have uh, a lot of different ways that it can express itself and whether that has to do with different ways of people getting infected uh, I really don't know I'm curious about that um, whether whether there are different kinds of transmission I mean it seems like it's mostly transmitted uh, 
through the air, through you know uh, droplets of, of uh, saliva or mucus in the air, um, uh, and is breathed in and, and uh, attacks the lungs. Uh, but are there other ways of transmission that you know, like like do you? It is possible to to get it orally and have it be uh, mainly a digestive illness. Um, hmm. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, this is just me sense. speculating. Yeah, no. I, I you mean, in other words, one could eat um, one could eat some of that contaminated meat that is not going to be circulating. So this is completely uh, it's it's a hypothetical rather than a uh, actual risk. Um, but, you know, one could eat something that was infected with it, for example, and then, you know, it pursues a gastric, gastric route. I've never heard that hypothesized. I do tend, to, because I have, you know, a 25-year background in health, I'm kind of interested in the health aspects of it, and I do look for things like that. Um, and, I do think um, that it's important, uh, the, the, it's a, a kind of genre of story that I've been looking for more of is stories that analyze how transmission happens in the real world. Uh, which I think is more useful than sort of, you know, laboratory analysis of, of you know, how it could possibly be, you know, uh, how it can theoretically be transmitted. Um, there, there is a lot of, you know, not enough, but, but there are some efforts to, to trace the, the chain of infection from one person to another to, to see how it's being passed along and, and looking at, at what kinds of, of uh, situations have led to, to transmission. Um, and in places where they have really done this thoroughly, like in China, for example, um, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like, like most of the transmission is happening uh, in indoor situations uh, from, from person to person, either through the air or through you know, handshakes or hugging, um, sometimes through shared food, um, which might reflect on the, the, the gastric idea. Uh, but it does not seem to, to there, there don't seem to be a lot of cases of uh, either people passing by someone on the street and, and, and giving it to them or someone handling something like a, a package uh, and, and leaving that and having someone else pick that up uh, you know, if, if that's happening, it's not happening so much that it's showing up in the in the research. Um, and so, I think it is it's useful to to allay some of our anxieties about this to to look at at what the actual venues for transmission are, what the the likely ways that that it seems that people have have passed on this illness um, mm-hmm. and. You know, uh, not to say you know everybody go to the beach, um, but but I think that there may be excess worry about like you know people in parks, um, mm-hmm. which do not seem like a major route of transmission um, versus uh, the home or the workplace or you know indoor social events. Um, which seem to be to be more more serious routes for for people getting this disease. Yeah, I mean, um, I 
you know, stop you on the New York subway um, several weeks prior to when this whole thing you know, went full blown. Because I immediately reasoned that you know, with everybody traveling around through the subway uh, and in close proximity and in an air, breathing a car, you know, breathing, et cetera, and, um, you know, that there could be a problem. The uh, And, of course, that's the case. Uh, and there's a lot more, say, about the New York subway as a vector and what you could possibly do to alleviate that. But um, the other thing that I read that I found very interesting was that um, a group of diners in a restaurant um, got COVID uh, because there was another several people um, who had it in the restaurant, and it got into the air circulation, air conditioning system. And so, you know, the idea that either heat or cooling systems, you know, which may deploy water internally or whatever, could become carriers in indoor space, um, you know, to me, that would seem to make a lot of sense, more so than, um, you know, package that somebody touched. Right. Um, and then it's fat, and then, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, I've been taking precautions on packages and everything, but I, I'm, I find it somewhat unconvincing as a really serious vector, although I suppose that for somebody with a very fragile immune system, you know, they could be at higher risk of that. Um, but... Um, but I think the whole, uh, you know, I think the air circulation systems, whether cooling or heating in buildings, um, you know, and that's how they exist in the subway, too. So it's circulating air, and then, you know, you might not have to be uh, sharing hummus with somebody, you know, to, to yeah. get it, you know. Um, it is fascinating to see those maps of, like, where people were sitting in a restaurant and who got infected. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, uh, you know, I, I haven't. I don't know that like like air has been circulated from like one floor to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm not saying that that hasn't happened, but I have not seen discussions of mm-hmm. of that kind of like like long distance transmission through through mm-hmm. air ducts. But um, the the six foot rule that people use um, it definitely does not apply in uh, like a like a restaurant. You know, in an enclosed space, people have have definitely gotten infected. You know, from much further away than six feet, uh, just by mm-hmm. by sharing a meal in the same space with someone. Um, it, it it's. Uh, um, I, I was reading a, a discussion that was talking about how it's you have to think in terms of both how much how many particles of virus a person is putting out, and how long you're exposed to them. Um, it's, I, 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 I tend to think of a virus being like, you know, uh, you get a virus in you and it, it multiplies and, and suddenly you're infected. Uh, and really apparently, uh, it's, it's not the case that like a single virus is going to infect you, that, that you need a dose of virus in order for it to, to get going with the kind of chain reaction that, that that creates an infection, um, and, and people say, you know, they're they're obviously guesstimating, but, but they're talking about it like a thousand a thousand viruses have to get into you in order to um, get a, a a reaction going. 
you know, and if someone is is uh, infected and is sitting uh, across the room from you, uh, you know, in a in a minute, you're probably not going to get very many viruses from them. But if you sit there for an hour while you're eating a meal, you know, you can get sixty times whatever you would have gotten in a minute. Um, and so that, that that that's why, like like passing people on the street. Uh, is not too dangerous, uh, but standing and and talking to someone for half an hour uh, is a is a much different story. Um, and the the uh, you know, so when people there, there's some talk about opening up restaurants with yep. lower um, without many people in them, you know, with like mm-hmm. like only twenty percent capacity or something, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's not going to infect as many people because there's only twenty percent of as many people in there. Um, but I don't think that just having you know the idea that that having more space between the tables is going to prevent mm-hmm. infections from happening. I don't think is looking at the the case studies of how people are getting infected. I think it's just sort of people wanting that to be true and and so assuming that it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, you know, what about the 14-day quarantine? Because, you know, with so little known about the whole thing, this has suddenly become, you know, some kind of assumption uh, that, you know, 14 days, if, you know, after 14 days all will be well or something. But, um, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, somebody <coughs> Harvard, you know, from the Harvard School of Public Health commenting that, in fact, it could be longer than 14 days. I mean, why would, uh, you know, it necessarily follow that particular rule? And they said that, you know, their uh, assessment is that in 10% of the population, it could be 21 days, it could be a month. So we're sort of basing a lot of these guidelines on, you know, this particular um, early assumption. Have you seen any literature where that's been modified? Because that would seem to make you know, kind of a big difference. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I remember the, the early studies that 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 where the, the fourteen days came out of, and it was based on uh, looking at at cases, you know, in mm-hmm. Wuhan, I believe, um, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, figuring out when people were infected, how long mm-hmm. it took for symptoms to come out, uh, and by the uh, the the sort of average length of of time for symptoms was five days, okay. um, and and fourteen was like like after fourteen days, very very few people were were coming up with symptoms. Mm-hmm. Now, this study I think doesn't take into account people who never express symptoms. Um, uh, and you know whether uh, how long it, it lasts in people who don't have symptoms is, I think, pretty unknown. I mean, maybe that's what mm-hmm. the Harvard person was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that that the because because the the fourteen days is not uh, if you have symptoms you'll be over in fourteen days. Uh, you'll you'll be you'll be a parent in fourteen days. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, 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 uh, 
you're going to get symptoms by the 14th day, almost certainly you will have had symptoms. Um, mm-hmm. and, and really, by I think the like the 10th day, like 99% of people who were going to get symptoms had symptoms by the 10th day. Um, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, there's there, it can go on for weeks after that, um, mm-hmm. but you'll know it. That's the the point of having the the quarantine is that is the idea that you will know whether you're infected or not mm-hmm. by 14 days. But mm-hmm. that's not really true because of the the asymptomatic part. And it, mm-hmm. it's really like like how you how you study people who are asymptomatic. It's really tough because they don't have any symptoms, right? Uh, they don't they don't show up in studies because they look just like everybody else. You know, you can only you can only find asymptomatic people by testing widely, uh, and and finding the people who you know had no reason to get tested, uh, or 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 maybe people who are exposed and are getting tested, um, got an infection, don't have any symptoms, um, but uh, you know, I've heard it said that, that like people confuse people who who never have symptoms with people who haven't had symptoms yet. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those are, are two different groups. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I've heard it said that uh, that not getting any symptoms at all is rather rare. Uh, but I, I think it's a, a, a big gray area because um, they're so hard to study. Uh, and also... Um, it's not clear uh, how infectious people who don't have symptoms are. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're not coughing and sneezing, uh, mm-hmm. which is good. Uh, yep. But are they are they putting out viruses just by breathing um, and not knowing it? Uh, mm-hmm. And it it does seem like the the five day lag between infection and symptoms is pretty long, and that's one of the things that makes this disease so dangerous. Uh, you know, I, I, like um, disease like SARS, uh, which is also a you know a, a coronavirus that is is has a high fatality rate, and um, you know it, it, it did not turn into a worldwide pandemic like this. In part because the, the symptoms come on earlier, and so you don't go around mm-hmm. infecting people before you know that you're that you're infected. Right. Um, uh, and that was why it was it, it could be contained, and you know we don't have you know the, this memory of uh, everyone shutting down their lives because of SARS because uh, it was much more obvious who who had who was infected, and this is why uh, really the main reason that you should be wearing a mask when you go out. Uh, in public is because you don't know whether you're infected or not. Uh, and if you are infected, having that mask is going to greatly reduce the chances that you're, you'll pass on your infection to, to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why I feel like a lot of people are, are not wearing a mask because, you know, they're not worried. Uh, yeah. and it, it strikes me as, as being uh, really sort of, um, you know, self-centered to, to, to not, realize this is not about protecting you from getting infected. It's about protecting other people from, from you infecting them. 
and people who may be in a much more vulnerable position than than you are. You know, you, you may be young and healthy and, and think that, that you will survive even if you get this disease, um, uh, but you may be passing it on to someone who is not young and is not healthy. And, and um, you know, the, the failure rates for, for elderly people uh, are, are quite shocking. Um, mm-hmm. This is a, a very, very deadly disease in the, in the populations that are most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the 60 and older or the 80 and older, what, you know, what do you, what, what populations, you know, what statistics are there for the various populations, if you're aware of them? Because, um, you know, if we're talking about other people, somebody, you know, isn't thinking about their grandparents or whatever, you know. Right, um, right. But, you know, like, what, are we seeing, like, what, one in eight, one in ten? Like, what are we I think in, in, uh, in Italy, in the, in the most affected parts of Italy, uh, like, ten percent of everyone older than 90 is dead from this disease. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a... Uh, it's really a, a scythe. Um, uh, the and it, you you you, uh, you see reports from nursing homes uh, where just a, a a big chunk of the the population of of a, a home will be wiped out by this thing, just going from from one one resident to the next. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's grim, um, and and. You know, it, it really, when you're thinking, uh, uh, I, I think it's easy to, to think in terms of, like, you know, when you, when you hear 1%, that sounds low, you know, 1%. In your mind, you think that's a, a, um, a tiny part of the population. Um, when, you, when you were talking about actual people um, and the, the populations that, that that one percent represents, um, it, it's really very serious, uh, and um, you know you, you see people. Uh, I think on the the more sociopathic end of the the political spectrum, uh, talking about how you know the people are dying are they're old anyway, um, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the life expectancy of an 80-year-old woman in the United States is 11 years. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like you're on death's door when you're 80 years old. Um, uh, many people have have many years of life ahead of them, um, and are it's it's cut short by uh, by this illness, and it does not have to. Mm-hmm. You know, this goes to the question of uh, American individualism. You know, because we have shredded the social contracts. You know, we've been taught um, to otherize and discount other portions of the population than our own particular group or silo. Um, We've been taught that our survival actually uh, depends on individual self-reliance over um, social caring you know, and social safety nets and stuff. And so that's all been a political process of, you know, several, many decades. Um, But then the end result is that you, you know, wind up with um, people who uh, believe and have been taught to believe and have been taught to survive living by the belief 
that everything is under their individual control. You know, even the, um, you know, as we were waiting for uh, the show hour to come, listening to some overnight broadcast, you know, of people laughing hysterically uh, at the end of another program, talking, you know, with the belief that, you know, their own personal uh, power uh, in some way was, you know, tremendously protective against anything. Um, And, you know, it's actually, um, you know, it must be comforting, but it's really a form of denial, um, you know, that you're a part of a greater system or group or that your group um, is also connected to the well-being of other, of, other, of other groups in the society or that, uh, or that we should care about other people and stuff like that, you know. And, and so there's actually been, even among those who consider themselves good people or who are religious or believing people in some other way, um, you know, have this, uh, this kind of uh, abbreviation of social caring yeah. uh, and this individual over self reliance, um, then it's it does, there, there's showing a strong up right par- now. There's a strong parallel between the the way that we approach healthcare uh, and this individualistic. It's your responsibility. You know, it's up to you to to come up with the 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 money for health insurance uh, mm-hmm. uh, rather than than a you know a, a Medicare for all approach. Um, right. And uh, and then you know it's your responsibility to keep yourself from being infected and and your choice uh, right. whether you want it to to protect yourself from being infected. It's related to the the economic system that we have, uh, where uh, you know it's sort of predicated on the the sink or swim model um, that that uh, if you don't make yourself a success, then you're a loser and uh, it's your fault. Um, uh, I, I don't think it's it's surprising that we have similar attitudes when it comes to to the the response to an epidemic and and the response to just everyday life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, making making a living, uh, and I, I think it it is uh, the the way that the the debate over the the shutdown has gone uh, has framed it as a, a sort of binary, like either people can uh, can stay at home to protect themselves from the virus um, and and run out of money for for food and necessities, um, or they can go back out into the workplace and and. Uh, Risk their lives and get paid, uh, and of course there there is a, a, a third option there where you you can have people stay home, protect the society from from this infection, uh, and use the resources of society to help people through this time to to give them the resources they need so that they can stay home, um, uh, and you know in. Uh, in Wuhan, at the the height of the epidemic, uh, everyone was getting food packages brought to their their door um, because they were they were so intent on stopping this thing that like like you, you couldn't go out to get groceries, um, but you weren't being left to starve. People were were bringing people with uh, masks and gloves and 
hazmat suits were bringing you packages of groceries so that that you would have stuff to eat during during this time, um, and that that got them through the the strictest time of of quarantine, um, and you know. Uh, they were able, despite having, you know, a, a full-fledged outbreak of this disease that no one had ever seen before, they were able to get it under control. Um, and, you know, there is now, uh, you know, some semblance of normal life, even in, in Wuhan, um, uh, because they took the disease seriously and they took the responsibility to, to support people through the disease seriously. Um, mm-hmm. they, 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 whereas you have a like like when we had a, a completely inadequate uh, one-time check for twelve hundred dollars given to people, um, and they made sure that that uh, if you didn't have a social security number, you if somebody in your family didn't have a social security number, you couldn't get the check. And the idea was to to make sure that none of those Sneaky illegal aliens were were getting uh, getting the support check, and mm-hmm. you know the point of, of the point of the support check is both because you don't want people to starve, and also because you want people to stay home and not be working and spreading the virus. You know, right. these are You're these not are doing two a social tasks. Yeah, um, um, and and to, yeah. to see like like certain people as unworthy of getting the support. Right. Is is missing the point? It, it, it's, not, it's not just missing the humanity. It's missing the 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 logic of why you're doing this in the first place. You 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 want you want people to be staying home because you want to stop transmission of the virus, uh, so that the virus will the 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 epidemic will burn out, and then we can go back to having normal lives again. Uh, and if you make sure that by design. Uh, a large chunk of the population uh, does not get the support, and so is forced to be to, to go out and work. Then you are ensuring that the virus will keep circulating. Uh, the epidemic will will stay alive. Uh, it will still be out there. You know, whenever you whenever you go back to to try to resume your life, the the disease is still out there, which is what is happening now. Uh, people are, are are trying to. Uh, resume normal life, and you can't because the, the if you have the the patterns of behavior that you had when the the virus got here, you will have the transmission rates that you had when the virus got here, um, and you will be heading. Uh, you know the the as, as we start out in this conversation, the 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 endpoint of normal of, of business as usual of, of not doing what it takes to stop the the the, the spread of the, the virus is millions of people dead uh, that that is the that's the the no no action alternative um, mm-hmm. uh, so you know you, you need to have uh, a plan to you know the minimum is that you need a plan to 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 slow down transmission of the virus, but if you don't have a plan to stop transmission of the virus, um, then you have to have the slowdown plan forever, or until until a vaccine comes, which you know 
who knows when that's going to happen. Yeah, or they may have problems with it because of the very herd immunity problem we've been discussing. Um, we have about six more minutes um, left to the show, and I just, you know, we're we're right on point here for, you know, where I was kind of hoping we would take this, which is, you know, there is now talk of relaxing, the, you know, the rules and getting beginning to get back to normal, and yet without testing, there's really, you know, is anyone projecting what will happen? What is about to happen if these social decisions are made? Um, you know, because uh, if we open up, you know, and, and exceed to that, what are we actually looking at on the health side? Yeah, I, I have been paying very close attention to the the numbers in the states where uh, where they've been relaxing the rules, um, and uh, I have actually been relieved to see that that in most places there is not a, a big explosion of um, of new cases, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the in and it's worth thinking about why why this hasn't happened. Um, the 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 places where restaurants have op- reopened on a limited basis, um, the when you look at the the data for um, how many people are using restaurants, there's a you know the, there's an app open table that that keeps track of. Of restaurant reservations um, mm-hmm. and restaurant use in in the places that have reopened is still down by like ninety percent or mm-hmm. uh, someplace eighty percent. Not like doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that I think has a lot to do with why we haven't seen a big jump. There, it's not that you can't get infected in a restaurant; it's that there aren't many people in the restaurants to get infected, um, and so you're, you're not seeing a big jump. They're making wise personal choice in that regard. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, it, it, it's. The the fact that there hasn't been a big jump is missing the fact that that what you want is to have a continuous decline, right? Yeah. Uh, to 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 keep infections coming at the same rate that they have been coming, which is the situation that most states in the in the country are in. Uh, it's 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 not a a state that you are should be aiming for. Um, right. Because because there are when they relax relax, relax rules, it, it's not going back to normal. It's not it's not uh, going back to the way things were before. Um, it, it, your your economy is still going to be greatly hobbled by the limits on people's behavior, both the the remaining official limits and the limits based on people's rational realization that if they they do certain things. They're they're risking a, a deadly disease. Um, to to go on in a, uh, in this sort of half life of of uh, coming out once in a while and and you know maybe having a, a restaurant meal where where half the tables have been removed. Um, it's it's not going to produce a thriving economy. It's going to produce a uh, an economy that you know we're we're in in the the deepest recession that we've been in th- since the Great Depression. Uh, the unemployment rate may actually have already matched the the depression rate. Uh, it's not going to bounce back if the the virus is is not gone. 
you know. Um, and uh, I think people really should be thinking about how to to get rid of this virus, which is something that there are countries in the world that that have taken uh, a different road, where the the idea is to get rid of it, and not to and not to keep it from overwhelming your healthcare system. Uh, and and those countries, I, I think, as the as the year goes on, are going to be looking more like normal countries in the 21st century, um, and and not and not look like what the United States is going to look like, which is a, a country that is under this uh, kind of uh, battle with the virus for for the indefinite future. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today on uh, you know, Connect the Dots, Jim Norekis. That's a you know that's a dire, but I think very practical and realistic warning. Um, Jim is the editor of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, which is online at fair f a i r dot org. Uh, you can follow his covered reporting as well as their other reporting on the media at fair dot org. Terrific articles, always very high quality. Um, really love your work. Big fan, Jim. Um, thank you so much. Of it. Yeah, thank you for being with us today. And uh, I'm glad really you had me fun on. to have you back, despite the topic. Um, you know, but I think it. You know, this this merits the seriousness that you give it. Um, thank you, listeners, for being with us for this edition of Connect the Dots. We'll be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm Allison Rose Levy. Mm-hmm.